I ignored her and maintained my concentration on the rock pool. A crab was scuttling across the sandy bottom, pushing past the fronds of seaweed that shivered like green ghosts in the almost motionless water. I trailed my net through the water, producing little circular ripples. Tiny fish darted out from their hiding places just below the surface of the water, so fast that I couldn't move in time to catch them. Quinn, where are you? We're leaving! My two other sisters, Fleur and Hetty, their voices shrill and harsh outside the silent world of secret life. I watched the crab. He thought he was safe. He didn't know about my bucket, nearly filled with crabs of all shapes and sizes. They were crawling over one another, their pincers waving, sending out messages of confusion to each other as they explored their new red plastic home. I edged the net along the side of the rocks, very gently, very slowly, holding my breath. Quinn, do hurry up! My mother's voice, strong and authoritative, carrying easily across the nearly empty beach. Breathing out, I raised the net from the water and let the crab escape. Strands of seaweed, tiny pebbles, diamond drops of seawater were trapped in the holes. I whipped it through the air to shake off the water and emptied the bucket back into the pool. Off you go, I whispered to the crabs. Be more careful next time. Then I was racing across the beach, the net and bucket swinging at my side. I could see my mother standing in the distance, watching me, her hand shading her eyes against the setting sun her straw hat tilted on the back of her head and her skirt clinging to her sea-damp legs. I ran and ran and ran, the air rushing past my face, my feet singing as they slapped down on the wet sand. Mr. Quinn? After five years on my roundabout, I'm still enjoying the silence and I resent the ease with which I've been dragged backward. I've become accustomed to the calm, uncomplicated present, where nobody ever calls me. Mr. Quinn, are you there? I'm not surprised she can't find me. The roundabout is so big, the traffic lights have been installed to control the drivers as they come on and off the motorway. The trees were here long before the roads once part of an extended wood, and the unknown bureaucrat, who made the wise decision to preserve as many as possible, should be officially congratulated. She emerges from the trees, a slight skinny girl with dark hair tucked into a woolly hat. Two red dots stain her pale cheeks. She can't possibly be more than fourteen years old. She sees me and starts. Oh, she says, I didn't know I was so close. She's not wearing gloves, and her hands dither with the cold as she pushes her bag back on her shoulder. A few twigs have got caught in the fur collar of her cream coat. I'm sorry, I got a bit lost. I hope that's not real, I say. She looks confused. The collar. I hope nothing died to keep your neck warm. She quickly realizes what I'm talking about.
Oh, no, I'm with you on that one. Anti-vivisection, anti-fur, anti-cruelty to animals. Trust me, I'm safe. This is just fake. Her voice, which wavered at first, grows more confident, and she grins. But if you didn't believe in slavery, I say, would you ask your husband to dress as a slave? She's not following me. I don't have a husband. What I mean is, if you don't believe in killing animals for fur, why wear something that pretends to be fur? Aren't you perpetuating the idea that fur is the only suitable material? I'm not sure how much of this I actually believe, but I'm enjoying the line of argument. She considers this. Actually, that's a good point. I must write it down. She's